Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. You're here because you're interested in the truth. So buckle up and jump on inside the Crime Scene Time Machine. I'm your host, Scott Roeder, and with me today is... Megan Freight. And today, we're going to be discussing vigilantism. Good afternoon, Megan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. That opening song was by Mark Colley called In Time from the Punisher movie soundtrack. Very fitting for today's conversation about vigilantism. I agree. It was a perfect little intro for it. Well, vigilantism has been in the news quite a lot lately. I think the thing that's on the tip of all of our many of million listeners uh, uh, voice uh, minds uh, is probably going to be the um, uh, New York City subway case. Um, pretty interesting case. Right. Uh, it's caused a lot of controversy um, recently. Apparently there's an entire uh, what's called a woke crowd uh, that has taken one side of the case. Um, now let's just break down the basic uh, facts of the case. You want to go ahead and uh, break those down for us real quick? What happened? Yeah, so basically the gist of it is that, you know, there was a man who got onto the subway and he started, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he started kind of just acting kind of crazy and being a little aggressive with those who were on the train. And um, Well, I think it was a little bit more than that. So uh, he gets on the train. What's this gentleman's name again? It's, um, uh, well, he was a well-known, apparently, street performer, a homeless guy, uh, unhoused individual, as they like to say, uh, who was a Michael Jackson impersonator, I guess, a street performer. We all have seen these folks, you know, hey, I used to live in Hollywood, and you go down Hollywood Boulevard, and you got, you got fat Spider-Man, and you got, um, you know, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, and all those... You know, people, you know, trying to take your pictures and do a little song and dance for, you know, a dollar and so on and so forth. And that's what this guy basically did in New York City, right? He yes. Did Michael Jackson stuff. What was his name? Uh, Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely, um, African-American individual, uh, apparently got onto the New York City subway, uh, immediately started talking about how he was tired and fed up and, you know... Obviously, having some sort of a mental breakdown, uh, which everyday people are allowed to have, but you know, a lot of these homeless people—they're on the street because of mental problems, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so he started screaming and hollering and carrying on, and they took off his shirt and slammed it to the ground as if he was ready to go. Right. You know, and um, and what happened then? Um, it seems that. Um he had been, like you had said, he was screaming and kind of just going crazy a little bit. And so one of the other riders jumped up and wrapped his arms around Mr. Neely, but around his neck and his head. And, and this gentleman uh, is a former Marine and has experience in MMA fighting, I guess. And what's his name? 
Mm-hmm. We're looking this stuff up live for you folks. <laughs> this is the magic how it's done. Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny. Mm-hmm. Uh, blonde hair guy. Uh, looks like an athlete. Like I said, former Marine. Apparently he has some experience um, MMA, you know, amateur-wise. But hey, listen, there's a lot of amateur MMA guys out there right now. You know, back in my day, you know, when uh, uh, people got into a fight, uh, you lucky, you know, put up your dukes, you know, hey. But now somebody's going to do a rear naked chokehold on you and chop your leg off with a front spin kick, right? Uh, MMA is very popular. A lot of people training on MMA. So, uh, so, um, so the... The um, now deceased mm-hmm. uh, was put into a what's called a sleeper hold, and that's where you take one arm and you put it under the chin and wrap it behind the earlobe, and then you take the other arm and you kind of lock that lower arm into place. And what it's supposed to do—it's not a chokehold, by the way. You don't—it's uh, not uh, meant to cut off your breathing. What it's meant to do is to cut the blood circulation off to your brain mm-hmm. temporarily, which causes uh, you to pass out. Right. And it happens in MMA all the time. Uh, and then what happens after that uh, is that this guy, Mr. Penny, uh, takes the, um, uh, the passed out individual. What's his name again, just for everybody? Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely and Mr. Penny. So Mr. Uh, Mr. Jordan passes out and is put in a sitting put in a sitting position, and and that's where you kind of shake them, you tap on their neck, you tap on their forehead, and um, that should get the blood circulation, and then they wake up. That's typically what happens. Uh, and in this situation, he didn't wake up; he died. Uh, and the Mr. Penny has been now charged. With second degree murder. And I guess let's just open it up for conversation. So let's talk about that. So you're on the subway, somebody's um, starting to wild, and you get nervous that he's either going to hurt you or hurt somebody else. What do you do, Megan? I mean, myself personally, as a woman, I don't know how much I could defend myself especially if it's the man was much larger than me but you know i feel like if it was a life or death situation i would try to do whatever possible to save myself and save those around me or those who i love from disaster or harm now there is a thing i I think that this brings up two issues in my mind one is fear there's rational fear and then there's irrational fear. And fear is based on societal norms, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a guy that points a gun at you, I think that you have what would be definitely a rational fear that you're in danger. Right, that your life could be taken away in literally a second. It's, it's very rational to believe that. Mm-hmm. But let's say you have a homeless person who is acting bananas Are you in fear? I don't know. Um, I guess it's based on 
your life experience. Right. I was going to say like your exposure to that sort of environments and those type of situations. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you a real quick question, a real quick um, little story. So I was down in um, Southern Florida, which I tend to do in the cold months. Uh, uh, and um, I was with my uh, lovely girlfriend, Crystal. Shout out to uh, my beautiful girlfriend, Crystal. If she's listening. Um, and she was sitting in the front passenger seat. I'm at a red light at a drawbridge. Oh. And the windows are down. We're listening to music. Beautiful day. And I don't know if anybody's been to Southern Florida, um, in the uh, Miami area. But there's uh, a thing that people do at red lights and such homeless people, beggars and so on, uh, they, uh, you're trapped at a red light mm -hmm. and they come up to your car and they ask for money. Well, as we're sitting there at this red light with a drawbridge up in front of us, we're there for a while. Cars in park, windows are down, listening to music, just chilling. And this guy comes up to the passenger side window and puts his head in the car next to my girlfriend and she screams like, ah! Wow. And I look at the guy, I'm like, you get the motherfucker out of here, dude. I was ready to murder him. I thought right. we were being carjacked. Yeah. And this guy was so shocked that we were surprised. And reacting to him being in your car. Yeah. But he was <laughs> offended. Like, I'm just asking for money. I'm like, yeah, but your head is in my car. Okay, so did my girlfriend have... Was that a rational or irrational fear? Oh, that's a rational reaction. I would have screamed too if I just saw a random head pop into my car. Like if my boyfriend was driving and a random stranger popped his head into the car right up against like my face right there, I would be scared too. I'd be like, what is going on? Get out. Like get away from us. But if you live in Southern Florida. That's probably regular. And here's the one reason I, I, I knew that it was normal after the fact I looked around, everybody else at the red light on this beautiful sunny day had their windows up. <laughs> we were the only car that had all of our windows down at the red light. And I guess, uh, you know. Made you the target. Made us the target for this request for money. Now, was this guy a threat in retrospect? No. Um, you know. Uh, but I think that's kind of... You know, where we got to think about this, you know, who you are and what is expected of other people in society. You know, are, you know, there was a time when I was a kid. I hate to pull that when I was a kid and walked up <laughs> both ways in the snow. Uh, but when I was, I don't know, nine years old in Cleveland, Ohio, that would have been... Uh, 1979? <laughs> uh, I used to take... The subway, well, we don't really have a subway here. It's more of a train. Uh, I would take the train from um, near my house all the way to downtown Cleveland, 10 miles away, to get a peek at a baseball game by myself. It's crazy. And nobody would bother me. We didn't have a problem. you know. But I want all you parents out there to ask yourselves now, if you have a 10-year-old kid, would you let him get on the train in your town to go downtown and watch a professional baseball game? No, definitely not. Probably not, right? Not so, in today's day and age, I feel like. It's not accepted in 
America necessarily. Like other countries, like in Japan and stuff, like the kids walk around like by themselves. They go grocery shopping. They do all these activities, and there's no adults adults around because everybody else in society can be trusted. Yeah, people can be trusted.、Uh, you're right. That's funny that you bring that up about Japan because I recently saw something on TikTok about how in Japan, literally, kids five years old, six years old, will ride public transit. Walk down the street at night, right? And all of the other adults take responsibility for that child、mm-hmm. because the child is a is a ch- child to everyone. All of the members of the community parent that child, right? What a beautiful thing! Exactly. It's like we, I, I wish we had that here. Could you move、know? to Japan? The food would probably be phenomenal. Konnichiwa. <laughs> Get some good sushi there. Yeah, but they do have weird stuff in Japan too, like the stuff you can get out of vending machines. Have you heard about that? Yeah, those would be fun to just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, buy sunglasses out of a vending machine. Yeah,、well, they sell more than sunglasses out of vending machines. They sell anything、Japan. you could probably think of, honestly. It's weird in a culture that、um, you know Japan is really a phenomenon. I know we're getting a little bit off track, <laughs> but you know if you look at,、uh, and we'll get back on track to vigilantism here in a second. But one place you don't need vigilantes is Japan, apparently,、uh, which is bizarre to me because if you look at Japan in the early, you know,、uh, in 1900s, all the way through the end of World War II, where they were the recipients of two atomic bombs,、mm-hmm. uh, they were an empire, the land of the rising sun.、Uh, they were, you know. Felt superior to all other Asians, to all other people, and、um, and then post World War II, they turned real cute, you know, Pokemon and all that stuff, and you know,、um, it's a very cute society now,、um, not very threatening, you know. We're just talking about children walking around the streets of Japan. You know, if you're a white person or American or whatever race you are, and you go to Japan. You know, people look at you and and like are interested in you and、mm-hmm. respect you, and it's a really interesting culture. I think、um, it's on my bucket list to 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 go to Japan and check that place out.、Um, but Japan is not a place where you need vigilantism.、Uh, apparently, where you need vigilantism is in the land of the free, the home of the brave. Maybe we should、um, have a new motto: Is America really the land of the free and the home of the brave, or is it? The land of the oppressed and the home of the desperate, <laughs> the home of the confused. I, mean,、yeah. I don't. We live in a land. You know, I was talking about this on the Tony Bruschi show the other day about the apocalypse. Now I'm not talking about the religious apocalypse. I'm talking about the word apocalypse, right?、Um, Armageddon. You know, the end of civilized society.、Mm-hmm. And I wonder if. It's it's a creep, more than like a single event. Like it's not just going to be, you know, all of a sudden, boom, everything's done. Yeah, or you know, because like if you look at inner city Chicago,、mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of apocalyptic over there. If you look at、uh, the Sudan, that's kind of apocalyptic. Cobalt mining in the Sudan. Yeah, that's ever... scary. That work is like it's scary watching yeah, them. Like ten little kids、mm-hmm. working twenty hours a day in a cobalt mine, you know these people, these kids are going to be dead by twenty from black lung. Even if they make it to twenty. Even if they make it to twenty, 
which is sad, but yeah, diamond mining in South Africa. Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous one. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've got this creep, and I wonder if this homeless epidemic, and really the homeless epidemic today, is way different than the homeless epidemic of years past. Mm-hmm. Uh, because today it's fueled by just drug addiction, fentanyl. I don't know. I, I guess I would be pretty terrified too if I was on the train and, you know, but I'm a man, you know, I, I know how to defend myself. I suppose I could withstand being in the presence of, you know, crazy people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people need help, how do you be compassionate? Is it compassionate just to let them wild? Right. Or do you try to assist in some sort of way? But like, what do they need? What? They, but that's they the, certainly that's don't the want question. your food. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all know, we all hear the stories about, you know, you know, you try to help a homeless guy, you give him, you, you go to a pizza shop, you give him a pizza, they throw it on the ground because they don't want the food, they want the drugs. Yeah, the money to go buy drugs or alcohol or yeah. whatever their addiction may be. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's sad that this guy's dead. Um, and, and, and did this Mr. Penny guy use proper judgment? I don't know. I, I guess I'd have to see the whole event that led up to it, uh, to really determine that. Was it intentional that he killed the guy? Probably not. Right. He's probably just trying to restrain him. Trying to make the situation stop and yeah. reduce everything that was going on. Yeah, I agree. But it does bring up the bigger issue of vigilantism. But before we get into that, we're going to take a... A real quick break, and uh, uh, we'll be uh, right back after this message, and we're going to get into the Menendez Brothers' murder from the 90s, and is that vigilantism? And then we're also going to get into a really fascinating case from all the way back in 1981 in Germany. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. And we're back. The song Puddle of Mud. The song is called Bleed off of the Punisher soundtrack. Vigilante episode of the Crime Scene Time Machine. All right, Megan. So we had a good discussion about the New York City subway case, which I guess could be considered vigilantism. Um, now, you know, obviously pop culture is full of mm-hmm. vigilantism. I mean, um, you know, Spider-Man, you know, he's a vigilante, according to J.J. Jameson. Yeah, the Punisher, uh, Daredevil. There's so many of them. The I entire mean, um, CTU thing with the, you know, the Hulk and the... The, the Avengers and The everybody. Avengers, that's what, the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Avengers are superheroes contracted by the government to be vigilantes. Or, what about the, what was it, um, the one with uh, Will Smith and the, the, the Harley Quinn? The, Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad. Perfect example of vigilantes. Um, I think my favorite vigilante movie is... 
badass or was it what was it called not badass kick ass kick ass kick ass kick ass is the best vigilante movie ever yeah it's about a really good one. Oh, that's so good um jim carrey in that movie was outrageous and then nick cage was in it jim carrey was in it um all those kids uh mclovin plays one of the bad guys <laughs> in it oh my god uh these great vigilantes in that um but that's, I mean, I guess not really real life, although there are real life guys. What's the name of that guy in Seattle? Phoenix Jones. Phoenix Jones is a vigilante. He actually has like a, I heard, uh, read today, a $10,000 like um, suit, like Batman. That he wears? That he wears that has a Kevlar vest under it. Wow. He's been shot. He's been stabbed. He claims to have stopped multiple crimes. Um whether that's true or not, we don't know. Uh, the guy's an MMA fighter, so on and so forth. And um, I guess the police tolerate him, you know. Um, but it, I guess it goes to the question of why in our modern society do regular people feel the need to be vigilantes? I mean, if you just take a look at the past few years, just... Since COVID happened and the death of George Floyd, like people have been calling for police to be defunded. Yes. So with that, I think that people then start to fear like there's still going to be crime even if the police aren't here. So what better way than to take action and do something yourself? You know, like strap in, strap on those boots and go out and fight crime yourself to try to make your neighborhood safer. I mean, it's a it's a good idea in concept, right? Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess to me, it shows that regular everyday people don't feel safe. Yeah, that's bottom line. And they do extreme things to try to feel safe. Mm -hmm. But why is fear? so prevalent in today's society. I mean, I think that you can look at mainstream media. Uh, there's so much fear-mongling that is put into, you know, we've got, I mean, school shootings, we've got mall shootings, we've got shootings, we've got, like, there's so many negative aspects of society that is put out that we just keep taking in and keep taking in through the media that there's no way to sometimes step back and say, there is good in the world, and there is good and justice, and there's happiness, but like all of that just covers it up. It covers it up. So we're talking about manifest dystopia. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a good question. Now, if the news covers, I don't know, sometimes I get so in a moral crunch about covering sensational murder mm -hmm. you know like I'm on the Tony Bruce show all the time we've been talking about the Lori Daybell case you know where she murdered her kids by the way guilty jury came back guilty after nine hours or something 
Oh, wow. That um, wasn't a long discussion. And then, you know, we talk about the Idaho case with those four young kids that were murdered. Um, and most likely that kid's guilty, too. So why is it such a great topic of conversation? Um, is it just murder porn, ex exhibitionism, gore, where uh, people are just eating that up and the news just lets them eat it up? Uh, because it, it keeps their attention, and is because the news constantly just talks murder, does that create a cycle that creates more murder? Yes, I think so, because even in college when we were studying criminal justice and learning, the number one thing we were taught is that, like, with reporters and news stuff like that for a crime to be public, if it bleeds, it leads. Hmm. Bleeds, it leads. Hear that Anderson Cooper? <laughs> Anderson Cooper, by the way. Do you know he's part of the um, Van Buren family? Mm. One of the 10 wealthiest families in the history of the world. Uh, and that he uh, studied at the CIA and most likely um, was and is a product of uh, the CIA program called Operation Mockingbird. You ever hear about that one, Mr. Koopa? You know, when I was in South Africa uh, and I was uh, over at the Oscar Pistorius estate, I was talking to Arnold Pistorius, and I got to sign um, his guest book. And on his guest book was political dignitaries, um, celebrities, athletes. And, matter of fact, I signed my name right beneath Oprah Winfrey. Wow. And um, he looked at me, and I'm like, wow, Oprah Winfrey. And he's like, Anderson Cooper wanted to come visit, but we told him to fuck off because we don't trust that motherfucker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's like a direct quote. Um, I was like, wow, all right. I get to sign instead of Anderson Cooper. So That's my brush with Anderson Cooper. Also, one time I was up for a job, um, at CNN, uh, and uh, apparently Anderson Cooper did not want me as part of the part of the thing. They said I was too much of a too much of a renegade. I wouldn't play ball, so I didn't get the job at CNN. Which, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't because you know, we you know we always talk about being part of the machine. You know, the machine of the media definitely creates the fear. Mm -hmm. They create the polarity. Um, you know how you talk, you know. Why, you know, I inter I recently interviewed a guy by the name of Samuel Chong, or Hong, Chong, I think, on uh, the podcast, uh, the episode, The Theoloba Prophecy. And in the book, The Theoloba Prophecy, the aliens that abduct this guy, Michel, from Australia, they say one of the problems with the modern society is the coverage of murder and death. And the only news that should be talked about when it comes to, like, murder and death should be... Five people died in a horrible accident, uh, murder today. Uh, they'll be missed dearly. And then they move on. But we seem to get into the weeds. Mm -hmm. We want to know the gory, gory details. Right, the deep, dark secrets, what's like the nitty-gritty of it all, like everything. Right, yes. especially if there's some kind of sexual scandal or mm -hmm. some kind dark, of... Dark, mysterious, something yeah. evil's going on. Yeah, people eat that up. Yeah. Well, that's not what we're here to pander, folks, at the Crime Scene Time Machine. We're, we're going to 
stay a little bit above that murder porn and uh, just try to, you know, talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, why, you know, why, why does stuff happen? So, all right. I think that was a interesting conversation. Let's get back into vigilantism a little bit. And I think before we get to um, the German case, mm-hmm. uh, my appearance today on the Tony Bruschi show, we talked about the Menendez killings. And if you guys don't remember, you're going to go back into the, you need to get back into the, into the crime machine, time machine, back to the year 1990 in Los Angeles, California. Kyle and Lyle Menendez killed their mother and father by shotgun blast to the head. Blew them to smithereens. And ultimately were convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison, which is where they currently are. At the time, I don't recall exactly if how much of this was brought out in trial. I think most of it was. But the Menendez brothers were repeatedly raped by their father and their mother their whole life. They were loaned out to members of the record industry, the music industry, the movie industry in Hollywood, California, California, Los Angeles, California, to other pedophiles. They were 19 years old. Well, the one was 19, the other one was 21. They had enough. Mm-hmm. And they blasted their parents' face off with a shotgun. In retrospect, some 30 years later, I mean, that is considered, I mean, I'd consider them vigilantes of their own crime. And I wonder what you all think out there in podcast land. Put yourself in this, put yourself in, in, in these shoes. You're a child. You're being raped by your parents. The people who you are supposed to trust. Yeah. And You're being held hostage yeah. basically by them. Mm-hmm. Um, are you warranted to kill them? I mean, with how many times they probably experienced that abuse and that sexual assault over and over and over again, you you hit you have to hit a limit at some point. Like the, I just I couldn't like just taking it all in. I couldn't imagine what they experienced through however many years this went on for, and then to just snap, like like. It makes sense. You can only, enough is enough, and you can only take so much. Well, the way I see it is, victims of abuse have only two options: they can abuse somebody else, or they can abuse themselves. And that's why a lot of victims of sexual abuse turn out to be drug addicts because they're trying to numb the pain of their childhood. Mm-hmm numb the pain of their horror. Um, And then other ones, they lash out. And that's what the Menendez brothers did. They lashed out of years of abuse and killed their parents. Um, 
I don't know, man. Uh, so it's coming up in the news recently. It looks like they're going to be filing for either a new trial or some kind of a revisitation of their sentence. And um, I don't have the answer to that question, but I, I think it needs a fresh set of eyes. Right. It's been how many years? 30. Like, they deserve to maybe at least parole, like something. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be in the news, so keep following it. We're, we're going to keep up on that story, too. But um, let's get to, I think, the most justified case of vigilantism mm-hmm. I've ever seen in my life. It was a video that popped up today of a young woman, mother, who does a tremendously harrowing thing in court. But before we do that, let's get to the crime itself. Megan, why don't you go ahead and lay the foundation for what happened here. Give us Set the stage. Year, location, names, places, go. All right. On May 5th, 1990, when Anne... Backmire was seven years old. She had an argument with her mother, and she decided to skip school that day. This was in East Germany, East Prussia. Exact location is Ludbeck. But anyways, Anna decided to skip school that day, and she was abducted by Klaus Grabarowski who was a 35-year-old butcher who lived nearby, and Anne had actually been to his house previously to visit um, and play with his cats that he owned. Ooh, so this guy, did the, this guy know the mom or no? Um, it does not say, but <clears throat> I'm assuming that if you would let your kid go over to a man's house to play with cats, you have to know who it Or maybe this was a, just a, a butcher shop on the way home from her school or something. That- yeah, but if she skipped that day, then she wouldn't be on her way to school. Yeah. So she, how old was she? Uh, she was seven. Seven years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she skipped school at seven years old. That's what, the third grade or first grade? Yeah, about there. Okay. And this guy takes takes her into her his home? Mm-hmm. And he what? held Anna for several hours at his house, sex, sexually assaulting her while she was there. And then... Mm-hmm. He ultimately strangled her with a pair of his fiance's tights. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened? So, according to his prosecutor, he tied um, Anna up and packed her into a box, and he left that at his um, butcher shop because he was afraid that his fiance would turn him into the police. Um, so he is a he was a convicted sex offender, and he had been previously si- sentenced for sexual abuse of two girls. That is known of so two, possibly even more. Um, in nineteen seventy six, he voluntary voluntarily submitted to a chemical castration, but although it was revealed later on that he was able to undergo a hormone treatment and had that chemical castration process reversed. Not sure how that does, but he had it reversed. So. Maybe they should have just snipped him. Yeah. So, um, so once he was arrested, um, he stated that Anne wanted to tell her mom what had happened and that she had been sexually abused by him and that he feared that she, that he would be extorted for money. Um, so he said that his fear of going back to prison prompted him to kill Anne. Okay, so he's in court. Mm-hmm. So he gets arrested. Mm-hmm. How does he get arrested? 
How do they find out about this? The girlfriend turns them in? Um, it does not say. But ultimately, he ends up in court. Right, for Anna's murder. Okay, and is he at an arraignment? Is this his trial? Um, it is the third day of the trial, which is March 6, 1981. Okay. Around 10 a.m., Backmire, which is Anna's mother, mm-hmm. she smuggled in a Beretta 70 into the courtroom of the Ludbeck District Courtroom, and this was room 157. But Marianne Backmire smuggled a Beretta 70 into the courtroom of the Ludbeck District Courthouse, room 157, and shot Klaus Grabowski, the convicted killer of her daughter, in the back. She aimed the gun at the back of Grabowski and fired seven shots. Six of those shots actually hit him, and the 35-year-old defendant was killed almost instantly. Um, Marianne then lowered her gun and was apprehended without resistance. So Hmm. apparently while she was held in custody, um, many messages of she received a lot of like support and gifts indicating that the public understood her conduct and why she did what she did. Um, nonetheless, there was people who believed that the constitutional state should not be condoned, um, condoning vigilante justice, even though he, she killed her daughter's murderer. Okay, here's the audio. This is caught live mm-hmm. on video. So let me set the scene here. Marianne Bachmeyer is dressed in an overcoat with a very calm look on her face, focused, mm-hmm. serious. And she pulls out a gun from her right pocket. You say it was a Beretta? Mm-hmm. Beretta 70. With no hesitation. There's no hesitation. She points and aims. She looks like she's maybe 10, 15 feet away. And she fires one, two, three, four, five, six, seven shots. And kills this guy. She is restrained by two men. She just stands there staring at this guy's dead in the courthouse. And calmly walks away. Um, Yeah. Her face just says it like it says nothing, but it says everything. Yeah, well, that's a lesson to all you pedophiles out there. Um, if the mom and dad doesn't kill you, guess what? They're gonna fucking murder you in jail so mm-hmm. fast. I actually saw a TikTok yesterday that said that prisoners love to watch uh, to catch a predator. And they watch it in, like, their big rooms together and basically wait to see what predator is going to be going where to see who is sexually abusing and mistreating children. Even amongst criminals, Mm -hmm. murderers, killers, child rapists are the scum of society. Yeah. And there's been an interesting phenomenon recently where some of these, I don't even know what they are. I saw this one video of a psychiatrist or a psychologist, not sure, you know, some kind of a sexual counselor in Erie, PA, mm-hmm. that is trying to replace the term pedophile 
with a term called MAPS. Um, and that stands for minor attracted person. No. And she tries to make an equation that it's not something these people can help. It's just who they are. They're just attracted to minors. And um, it's uh, like a, it's like they're gay or there's something like you're born with it. You know, you just, no, I'm sorry. Even if it is something you're born with, which I don't believe is true. The being a pedophile is. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't deserve to be a part of society. Um, to take away the innocence of a child is, in some situations, worse than killing. Um, now, I heard recently um, in the state of Florida, Governor DeSantis is supposed uh, to a new law through the Florida legislature that people who rape children under the age of, I think, 13 are now eligible for the death penalty. Really? Hmm. I wonder what effect that's going to have on, on those people there. Because um, instead of going to jail for 10, 20 years, these people might be eligible for the death penalty. Would that cause these people to then always kill their rape victim? Because if it's the same penalty for rape as it is for rape murder, I guess why not just rape murder instead of just raping? It's the same penalty. I wonder, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if that really is how people think. I, you know, I don't know if punishments for crimes really affect. Because when people do these crimes, they're not like, well, what does the law say? Right. <laughs> you know? They don't really care about what the law is, period. Right. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. It's, boy, it's a downer of an episode, Megan. <laughs> we didn't mean to get this deep, but yeah, it's wow. Okay. So, um, so I guess that's what we got right now, folks. Um, vigilantism. Do we need it? Maybe. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing because, like, the vigilantes, like, yes, they can go out and stop crimes, but they're also putting themselves out in danger. And they're also, like, putting themselves into police investigations. And who knows how long sometimes police investigations take. And if some guy just comes trying to solve this crime and on a random Thursday, he, he could mess up the whole the whole investigation. He could kill the wrong guy. Yeah, exactly. They could get hurt, hurt killed, injured. So it's just... Right. There's a lot of cons, but, I mean, if you're willing to go out and protect others, then... Well, you're putting your life on the line. Yeah. Whether you put your life on the line to be killed in the process of what you think is doing a, a benevolent, justifiable homicide, um, you could kill the wrong person, you could be killed. But most certainly, if you do this thing, you're going to give up your life because you'll be arrested and you'll go to jail. Right. And if they're willing to take that consequence, um, you know, I don't know if I want to live in a world where, you know, where these people have to exist, you know, uh, you know, my prayer to the world is that we live in a world where we don't even need police because, um, you know, we all take care of each other. We love each other. We all have enough to eat. We have enough to drink. We all have a home. We all have a place to live. Nobody's addicted to drugs and fentanyl and, and this and that. We don't have to lock our doors 
because people are going to come in and steal our TV or whatever the heck people steal when they break into a house. How the hell do you steal a TV anyway? Do you guys are break into a house and like grabbing somebody's flat screen TV and running down the street with it? I mean, That'd be hard. TVs are so cheap anyway. Do people even steal? What do people even steal? Nobody has money anymore. Don't, <laughs> we're not in a cash society. I mean, just your credit cards. Yeah, people are going to break in. To what, steal your underwear? I don't even know. Yeah. If I broke into a house, I wouldn't even know. What What the hell would you want to steal? I don't know. I don't even know what I want when I go to the store, so I can't. Right. <laughs> you know, I do know one thing, though, is that, um, you know, uh, people like to break into stores. Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, but they don't even get arrested for that stuff anymore. I mean, did you see what was going on in Chicago? Was it a couple of months ago? Where there was like thousands of kids just ransacking the Miracle Mile on every store. It was just ransacked. That's crazy. He was just running out with jeans and crap and stuff. I mean, did you even go to the fitting room? How do you know those jeans are going to fit you? I mean, what are you stealing? You're stealing a Nike t-shirt? Right. Are you going through when you're when you're robbing the Nike store? Are you checking to see if it even fits you? But then those people who are robbing, like, the Nike stores and the Adidas stores and the Apple stores, you know, they, you know, they can get off scot-free or have like a little smack on the wrist, but the guy that steals a loaf of bread to feed his family gets five years or whatever the case may be. But you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it's not, the no. punishment does not equal the crimes. No. Well, I know like in San Francisco, which is my least favorite city in all of America, I've been there many times. It's just so littered with garbage. It's the filthiest city I've ever seen in my life. And I've been to Africa. The level of disparity between the wealthy and the poor there is you're either a multimillionaire or you're uh or you're uh or, or you're um you know working for a drug addicted fentanyl homeless person. Mm-hmm. There's not really a whole lot in between. Right. Working for the millionaires, possibly. So, uh, I don't know. Why did I bring up San Francisco? Because <laughs> uh, it was dirty. Yeah, dirty. Um, well, I'm, no, I'm talking about, oh, they have a law there. That's right. Where you can steal anything under $1,000 and it not be considered a crime. What? Yeah. So, if you go, I think it's $1,000 or maybe $500 or something like that. But they've determined a dollar value that um, you're allowed to steal up until. So all these mom-and-pop shops boarded up. Because, you know what, if you have a mom-and-pop convenience store, if, if you can't afford to lose $499. No. Let alone 1000 Yeah. Uh, but, Target prob- but Target is closing down. Uh, Walmart is closing their stores in a lot of these bad neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh because people are allowed to steal a certain amount. So they just take advantage of that. Um, Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, You know, I want to be positive. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take another quick break. I'm going to try to be, uh, find something positive to talk about. Because as you know, on Crime Scene Time Machine, no matter how deep and dirty we get into the uh, cesspool of murder and society, We always try to end it on a high note. Yes, we do. So we're going to take a quick break. 
try to readjust our polarity, right, Megan? Right. And we'll come back with a positive message to send you off into your day. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. With a little help from Post Malone from the uh, Spider-Man movie into the uh, Spider-Verse with the song Sunflower. Good job, Post Malone. It's a damn good song. And we're back, folks. We needed to really dive deep to try to turn this sad story and turn that frown upside down. And... We're talking about citizen action, and I think one of the best ways we can help each other live in a productive society is by promoting and protecting the truth-tellers out there. Mm -hmm. People like Julian Assange, who's currently a political prisoner, uh, for disseminating truth. Uh... Some people consider him a hacker, you know, um, but what he really was, was a truth teller. Uh, there's a lot of truth tellers out there, mm-hmm. and um, some people call them whistleblowers, right? Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden. He's a truth teller. Without Edward Snowden, we wouldn't know that we were being spied on every second of the day, and we still are. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact... Here at Crime Scene Time Machine, I was hooking up my uh, new computer system and whatnot, and I was going through my Wi-Fi signal, and there's a Wi-Fi signal for an FBI van within reach of my voice. So, hey, guys in the van, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, howdy, howdy, welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But seriously, folks, um, you know, I think the way to turn this... uh, Brown upside down is just to realize that if you see the truth, say the truth. You know, let's not uh, um, buy into the fear that we have to live uh, on edge every day. Um, use your own eyes and your own judgment. What you see out of your eyes, and what I see right now. I see green grass, I see blue skies, I see young people interested in the truth, I see old people trying to hang on to the truth, I see dogs happy and birds chirping, and, um, you know, uh, what do you see, Megan? I see this as a very um, positive, honestly, podcast because... Yeah, we are just telling the truth. We want everybody to know what's all going on, whether it's dark and dirty or it's light and happy. So we're happy to bring you guys all of this content and deliver it in a fun way to you guys. You know, as they say, sunlight is the best antiseptic. So let the sun shine on down and um, the truth will uh, be what it is. Uh, So... All right, guys. I've been Scott Roeder. And then my name. I love Planet Earth.
Damn it, Sarah. Remember you and um, uh, Dr. Lee and Melvin uh, Tucker and myself were at your house in Pittsburgh uh, working on the uh, Prevention of Officer Involved Deaths book. Do you recall? Oh, yeah, no, I remember, yeah. Before we get into your book, I just wanted to ask you this. Bobby Kennedy and JFK were both killed, in my opinion, in the same manner, in that if you're looking at a serial killer and you're looking at a serial killer who has a MO or a uh, modus operandi, uh, you would say that um, uh, the Kennedy assassination, Bobby and, John, and Jack, are extremely similar. Both shot uh, using the technique of uh, misdirection, uh, both in the light of day on camera in a very public event, um, almost say a terrorist attack, in a way, to, for the shock and awe value. Uh, are you of the opinion that, that the assassination of John and Bobby were perpetrated by the same entity? I believe they were perpetrated uh, by uh, yeah, kinds of people um, uh, with that uh, socio-political um, objective um, and uh, um, plan in mind. Yes, I do believe um, there is now uh, whether they knew each other or not. Uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to stress from the uh, Scene Time Machine. Scott Roder is a crime scene reconstruction expert, having traveled the world investigating countless murders. You are here because you are interested in the truth. Buckle up and let's take a ride. On November 22nd, 1963, our guest was 32 years old and just getting his career in legal medicine off the ground in his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He attained a medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in 1956, law degrees from the University of Pittsburgh in 1962, and the University of Maryland in the same year. A license, uh, license to practice law in the state of Pennsylvania was a member of the state bar there, as well as the American Bar Association. A partner at one of the city's leading law firms, a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Science, the president of the American College of Legal Medicine, a U.S. Air Force veteran, associate pathologist at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, and served as a captain in the United States Air Force Medical Crew. Um, and so much more, just at the age of 32 years old since then, uh, he has gone on to perform over 25,000 autopsies 
and over 40,000 case consultations, including famous cases like John Benny Ramsey, Sharon Tate, Anna Nicole Smith, Vincent Foster, and many more. He has authored many books and many scientific papers. Uh, our next guest is on the Mount Rushmore of forensic science heroes, right next to Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Edwin Lacard, and of course, Dr. Sherlock Holmes. Our guest is Dr. Cyril Weck. Cyril, thank you so much for coming on the show and having a chat with me today. Thank you for having invited me. It's kind of a pleasure to talk. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Um, now, uh, Doctor, uh, you've authored yet another book, uh, this one called The World's Greatest Murder Mystery, regarding none other than the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I have so many questions to ask, but I'm going to ask this first question just to get it off my chest. Are the Dallas Cowboys really the one to blame here? Just seriously, uh, uh, I had to throw in one little joke because this is kind of a depressing subject uh, from the standpoint of being an American citizen. Uh, and now, Dr. Mark, you've you are simply the authority on the assassination of JFK, having done your conducted your investigation for you know 60 59 years now why should people the millennials out there the 15 year olds to the to the to the 50 year olds people who were born after the assassination of jfk why should they care about this dr weck that's a very good question and i've just been invited by um, a gentleman who is writing a book on that it's writing forward for very important and uh, uh, people ask me that, and people wonder, uh, including, I guess, some of my friends uh, and so on, why uh, I continue to uh, devote so much time and effort and energy to this matter. Because when you have um, the assassination of a president, broad daylight, one of the largest cities in the country, and you have then overthrown the government, you have effectuated a coup d'etat in America. To allow that to happen, and to allow the cover-up that has continued now for almost uh, six decades is absolutely unacceptable. And it is anathema to the basic principles of our American society, our political beliefs, the foundations upon which our country was created and and hopefully will exist for a long time. Uh, because if you allow something like that to just be forgotten, then you are not doing what is required in order to preserve the uh, basic concepts of democracy, of an honest, open society, you have to realize what is involved here. The cover-up by governmental agencies, cover-up by major news media, all of them in this country. And think about that. I find that so offensive. It is difficult even for me to, to articulate it and not get angry.
it can easily go down the rabbit hole of of, of being so sad and so, um, I guess, uh, disappointed that the American dream is really just a dream. Now, Dwight D. Eisenhower said, the only way to defend ourselves against tyranny by our own government is to have an supremely informed public and beware of the military industrial complex. Uh, in that famous speech, I feel, and I'm curious of your opinion, is the direct dumbing down of the American public by the distraction of the circus of what the media has become since 1963, a direct result in keeping, uh, or, or should I say not a direct result, is a direct effort by the powers that be to keep America uninformed for the reasons just like this. Well, the news media, um, obviously bought into it. I, I can't believe for one second that people uh, 50 uh, nine years ago at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and uh, the major magazines and uh, then television, NBC, CBS, ABC, that's what we had at that time, that they were all so stupid to have believed that Lee Harvey Oswald was a sole assassin in this matter. They weren't imbeciles. They reviewed everything and so on. Uh, they work closely then with the government. They really do. And uh, things have changed somewhat uh, post Watergate, post Vietnam War, in terms of uh, not blindly accepting and uh, swallowing um, without hesitation everything that the government tells you. Uh, but it still exists, and by at that time in 1963, uh, pretty much whatever the government put out there, that was accepted. Well, and that's because there was this amazing sense of patriotism, of American pride. Of course, 1963 puts us directly in the middle of the Cold War. And for all of the young people out there, and we have many, many thousands of listeners that are under the age of 40. Dr. Weck, um, and uh, I don't think that those people can understand the, uh, the, the effects of the Cold I still, as a young child, uh, remember the effects of the Cold War in the early 70s when I was going to school at St. Angela Marici uh, Primary, uh, that we would have drills uh, 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 for a nuclear war. Uh, where we would all run into the basement when we heard the nuclear bomb drill sound and put our heads between our legs and hide under desks for about 20 minutes. And we did this about once a month. Uh, I think it was around the year 1975 to 1977, something like that. People here in, in today's world, they don't know anything about that. But there was this sense of rally around our country rally around America, rally around freedom, communism is bad, uh, to the point where um, it, it was just a fear-based patriotism. Yes, uh, you're right. And uh, while uh, Senator McCarthy took the 
too far to the extreme, but that kind of mentality uh, certainly uh, did exist. And that's important too, as we talk about the JFK assassination, because one of the things that he had set out to do, um, which was certainly unacceptable to this military industrial uh, complex and mentality, was a cooling down of the Cold War, a warming up of the, of the, of the Cold War, um, reaching out to, to Khrushchev and, and so on. And while I'm not suggesting there would have been, uh, you know, a, a compound mentality, ranchers and sheepmen dancing around the campfire, and let's all be friends, <laughs> it's been something significantly uh, better than what and I'm going to save I'm going to save this question until the end, but I want it to percolate a little bit. Is it possible that Kennedy reached out to Khrushchev because of a common fear of something and wanted to collaborate with Khrushchev? Of course, a common fear of nuclear war. I mean, uh, but there was other common threats that possibly Kennedy was uh, talking to Khrushchev about? Well, yes. I, I think that um, they came to realize the dangers of nuclear war, and that's why the Russians backed off of Cuba following the Bay of Pigs debacle. And, uh, and remember, China was beginning to emerge then, uh, Mao Zedong and Chilean Lai after World War II. Uh, had uh, banished uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, to uh, Fort Mostov, and now called Taiwan. And uh, they were growing to be, and had become, this uh, great power. And, uh, you know, arguably a greater power than us. The population, the size, the mentality, the work ethic, things that you can do uh, in a totalitarian society that we can't do in a uh, democracy. Um, uh, you know, it reminds me, Winston Churchill talking about government and so on, made one of his many, many, many observations of brilliance. Um, um, democracy is a terrible form of government. The only problem is there is nothing that is uh, unacceptable alternative. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, so I was working, uh, I just got hired recently on a, on a case in Australia, actually a couple of cases in Australia, and, uh, and I, I wasn't all that keen to this particular idea, but uh, Australia still bends a knee to the crown of England. And uh, matter of fact, in all of their legal proceedings, it's called the crown versus, you know, the defendant. And when I was preparing for uh, my reconstruction on the case, uh, I realized, well, they're not, uh, they don't have the same legal system as us. And when I worked on the Oscar Pistorius case and was in South Africa for that time in 2014, I realized that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the legal system in, in uh, South Africa is not as good as the United States. And then I work on all these cases here in America and I realize our system isn't perfect either, but it's the best one we have. By the way, I think Pistorius is up for possible uh, parole, right? Uh, That's right. 
Yeah, he is. Uh, a matter of fact, I'm uh, planning uh, to travel back down to South Africa to uh, possibly do a face-to-face -face interview with Oscar. But anyway, let me get back to the facts and the meat and potatoes about this case. And let me throw some facts out at you, Doctor. Um, uh, these are facts. Just after the shots rang out that day in 1963, almost 59 years ago, uh, a large group of onlookers immediately ran up towards the grassy knoll instinctively because that's where they were physically reacting from where the shots came from. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, so all of these people, were well, they all imbeciles? They all uh, have some auditory uh, defect uh, uh, leading to, uh, they ran toward the grassy knoll. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, and that is human behavior. I mean, that is incontrovertible evidence that was just absolutely ignored. Before you go on to the next fact, this is a good point. Correlate that with something that most people don't even know about, and that is that one of the uh, uh, police officers riding uh, behind Kennedy's car uh, had to. Uh, inadvertently left his uh, motorcycle radio leader in a position of transmitting uh, instead of just receiving. And that transmission was recorded, and that transmission was subsequently studied by the foremost audio experts in the, in the country, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, and by Weiss and Kanazi, Ashkenazi, New York, and um, they both came to the same conclusion that the four shots um, definitely, and that, that that's from the front as well as from the rear. So correlate that with all of those hundreds of people rushing to the grassy knoll. There were other onlookers that immediately pointed toward not the fifth floor of the book depository, but the roof. And there, and there are witnesses that saw somebody on the roof of the book depository. That could not have been Oswald on the roof. No, of course not. Right. Okay, another fact. The stretcher bullet never struck Kennedy. Fact. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think the stretcher bullet is a plant. Yeah, so... It, <laughs> Yeah, I and the stretcher bullet, and I got this from your section in your book called the stretcher bullet section, starting on page 46, which I absolutely loved. And it was so timely because I had just listened to a podcast with Joe Rogan. And uh, Joe Rogan uh, is an avid uh, hunter and marksman. I'm an avid uh, gun uh, uh, owner and user, primarily not for fun, but I use the guns for for my experimental science projects for particularly officer-involved shooting cases, which I do very many. And I'm familiar with the modern 223 rounds and, and, and the flowering effect of these bullets and, and how they're intended to operate. And um, uh, sure, that bullet was fired, but I'm gonna argue that that bullet was fired into possibly gelatin or, or a bale of hay or, or something to that effect, because there's no way that that bullet could have passed through two bodies and be in such perfect condition. 
I agree completely. Um, the uh, most valued single piece of um, materials that I have in my JFK collection, one single piece, is a picture that was made by the government, incredibly, that people aren't aware of. I show it every time I speak. I'm sorry we can't show it while we are talking here today. Well, maybe if you send it to me in a picture, I could put it on the webpage for this episode and we could share it to everybody. All right, I'll try to do that then. Uh, they got the, uh, another manic de Parcano, the alleged murder weapon, this piece of junk, bolt action, non automatic carbine, and the same ammunition, 6.5 millimeter copy jack with lead core bullets. And they fired first into cotton wiring. What would a bullet look like? It just striking nothing, just having been fired. Then they fired, and who knows how many times they did it, not just once, of course, probably dozens of times, through goat carcasses, breaking one whip of a goat mm -hmm. to see what it looked like. And then they got human cadavers, um, shit dozens of times, and fired to uh, break a radius, one of the two long bones from the elbow to the wrist. Um, both of those bones um, were broken commonly, the radius and the right rib. Uh, right fifth rib, um, and that picture shows the significant deformity of a bullet that broke just the rib and a goat. The significant deformity, the classical peeling back effect of a bullet that strikes a large bone like a radius um, in a six foot four big bone section like John Conway. And then in that same picture, you have at the other end of the photo, uh, Commission Exhibit 399, um, the structure bullet, the hero of the so-called bullet theory, which Mark Lane and I and others have labeled as the magic bullet theory, it is their, their own evidence. You talk about getting away with murder, mm -hmm. no, no pun intended. <laughs> they conduct an experiment, and it's it's out there. Now, you're telling me that an editor of the New York Times can't look at that and see, you don't have to be a forensic pathologist or a ballistic expert. There's no expertise required. Here's the picture. And that, and that right there shows the complicitness of the media buying the Warren Commission's story. Now, in preparation for this interview, I went back and I watched all of the archival footage from CBS uh, it's all strung together live. You can Everybody can go out there and get it on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. Uh, and it shows all of the original news footage from Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite um, and, and all those people live at the scene interviewing uh, the police and, and, and just buying the story uh, from the Warren Commission hand to mouth without asking any questions. And so, of course, the media is complicit on that. But here's another question I have for you. And you may, may, may or may not feel comfortable asking it, but I'm here to ask real questions, Dr. Weck, not just pick around the edges. And both being professionals in the legal uh, world, I want to ask you this. How disappointed are you in Dr. Baden and, Dr. And, and Mr. Arlen Specter in propagating this bullshit? Well, I'm very disappointed, and uh, yeah, Michael Bond uh, is a good friend and respected colleague, uh, 
And uh, I, every now and then, will pass on stuff to, to Dr. Biden and ask him to uh, review it. Mm -hmm. And uh, referring to Oliver Stone as a two-hour program that was just released. Um, and in February, it'll be a four-hour documentary uh, in which they interview all these people and so on. You might keep that in mind. And by the way, a, a program that was picked up by countries all over Europe and Asia, by which American television refused to pick up. And finally, I think Netflix will do it February of next year. Mm. I mean, there is this condensed two-hour version that is available uh, through Oliver Stone. So, oh, and by the way, just to jump in there, you actually got Oliver Stone to write the preface for this book. What a great grab. I'm, I'm, I'm just... So in awe, one, in my respect for you and your career, like I said, you're on the Mount Rushmore, and on the movie side of the world, Oliver Stone's right there with me. He got me so excited back in 2019 when he put out a, I think it was like a 16-hour documentary called, uh, and I'm just going to loosely remember it, but, but it was called something about... Uh, the American history they didn't teach you in school, something to that effect, the real American history. Uh, and it was such a nerd deep dive into American history starting around, um, you know, uh, the Great Depression and going all the way up through the Kennedy assassination and through 9-11 and all that stuff. Uh, of course, he directed and wrote the JFK movie starring uh, Kevin Costner, which if you look back at that movie historically... He got a lot of that right, didn't he, Doctor? He sure did. You know, I was a technical consultant for two hours on that movie. I went down to New Orleans where they were filming, and I'm the person that is responsible for that wonderful scene, which I have been using um, many times and was not in, had not been included in uh, his uh, presentation with Kevin Costner playing the role of New uh, Orleans Parish. District Attorney from Garrison, uh, Kevin Costner, uh, then demonstrates the trajectory of the uh, bullet, the single bullet theory, the absurd, unbelievable trajectory, the impossible uh, vertical, horizontal uh, <laughs> The magic bullet, right? <laughs> we established a warm relationship, and we've been friends ever since. We've had this friend a couple of times for big JFK programs that were conducted, and uh, I was delighted then to be interviewed by Oliver Stone in this uh, uh, documentary that I have referred to, which will be available in February. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and then a forward by him is very meaningful. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw uh, Oliver Stone, uh, just a real quick uh, little aside on him for all the uh, people here out there that, that need to be an aficionado on Oliver Stone movies, uh, is Oliver Stone once went to Russia and sat down for days with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he, he shared Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I, I thought that was just a magical piece of television documentary to get Vladimir Putin's reaction to Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film uh, about uh, nuclear war, a comedy starring Peter Sellers and, and a lot of other fantastic actors. Um, but the balls on him to sit down with Vladimir Putin and show him Dr. Strangelove, that's exactly what I would have done 
What would you have asked Vladimir Putin, Dr. Weck? Well, um, that indeed was uh, very, very, um, how shall I say, uh, uh, challenging, aggressive, um, uh, physical for Oliver Stone. But that's the kind of a guy he is. I think Oliver Stone is a great, great patriotic American. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so are you, Dr. Weck. And it is my continued honor to be talking with you. Um, Let's get back into a couple more facts on the JFK assassination. And one of the things that I think is so critical is the evidence. And I'm talking about just the objective evidence, doctor. The evidence suggests that Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill Officer J.D. Tippett in Dallas, Texas. Would you agree that there is not enough evidence to get an indictment with a grand jury against Lee Harvey Oswald in the death of J.D. Tippett? Yes, I would agree. Uh, That has always remained a puzzle to me and many of my colleagues who are Warren Commission uh, critic researchers, uh, it's uh, very, uh, very questionable as to whether or not Oswald shot Tippett. And if he did, if he did, he did it uh, uh, in a defensive measure because he realized that Tippett, he would have realized that Tippett was there to kill him. <laughs> That's uh, that where Tippett was not stationed anywhere in that area, um, and uh, he winds up driving, supposedly, in a very hasty fashion uh, to go and help out if he could uh, with everything that was developing following the assassination, and uh, driving fast. And he, but he looks out the window, and darn, if he doesn't say, I'll be damned, that's, that's the guy that's going. <laughs> He just got five foot nine, average bill, just walking quietly down the street, uh, dressed uh, quite uh, uh, simply and so on. How did Tippett come to know that that was Oswald? So I say Oswald not have shot him, but if he did, it would set up uh, from the beginning uh, for Tippett uh, to have accomplished uh, what. Uh, was not achieved, namely getting rid of Oswald. Well, what about this, though? In the Warren Commission's uh, investigation, they rely heavily on the testimony of a woman who uh, said she saw um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, shoot J.D. Tippett. Uh, But yet they totally ignore the, uh, what I believe to be, the um, uh, 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 very specific testimony of Aquila Clemens, as you state in your book on page 52 uh, regarding uh, the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, which is another fantastic chapter, uh, that uh, Aquila Clemens saw two men involved in the murder of Officer J.D. Tippett. One guy was short, uh, and heavy, and the other guy was tall and thin, wearing khaki pants and a white shirt. 
Uh, and then Clemens, Clemens added that once Tippett was on the ground, the shooter waved off the other man. They left the scene in opposite directions. She told Lane she was soon visited by a man who didn't give his name but carried a handgun, and he told her that she should not repeat her story to others. She might get hurt. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. As, I mean, that is mind-blowing to me, Doctor. Yes, I agree. And, but yet they rely on this Helen Markham to be the eyewitness of this story. Throughout the Warren Commission investigation, witnesses that were called and witnesses that were not called and other witnesses who were interrogated in a very abbreviated, sculpted fashion to get from them only that which our inspector and others wanted to have on the record. It's just unbelievable. We, we can go back to just simply the O.J. Simpson case uh, where our colleague, uh, Dr. Henry Lee, was able to testify that the, the, the uh, bloody glove should never have been entered into evidence uh, because it was mishandled with regard to the chain of custody as well as many other things. Now, the chain of custody in the evidence regarding the death of John F. Kennedy spoiled from the very beginning, they did not set up a perimeter. They did not clear the area. They did not secure the crime scene. They had ungloved, uneducated uh, police officers. I'm not saying police officers are uneducated, but they weren't scientists. They weren't crime scene experts. Uh, collect, hold, handle, and put on public display the rifle uh, that they allegedly found so conveniently uh, 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 right next to three shell casings <laughs> um, in the uh, sniper's nest, allegedly on the fifth floor of the book depository, holding the weapon up for the news media without gloves. Uh, just ridiculous. Is this before the age of modern science, Dr. Weck? I, I do believe that uh, uh, appropriate uh, scientific measures had been somewhat universal in murder cases standard throughout the United States by 1963. Why, uh, or what is your criticism or comments on the casual nature of the handling of not only the evidence of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but the handling of the evidence of J.D. Tibbet? There were several people who had touched, manipulated the gun, the weapon, and all kinds of things and uh, the officer's squad car before police ever arrived. Uh, what, what kind of uh, uh, half-hearted, uh, uh, foolish venture was the Dallas Police Department undertaking? And that leads me to the question, are the real culprits on the ground, people that should have been arrested that day, were in fact members of the Dallas Police Department? I don't know if they were members of the Dallas Police Department, but I think all the things that you have pointed out um, were accomplished by a combination of um, a lack of uh, training, a uh, rush to judgment, and uh, manipulation by uh, uh, superiors here and there. You put all of those together, and they accomplished what one would have thought would have been impossible to achieve, and that is the cover-up, which we have talked about, that has continued for these 59 years. You had a combination of people uh, not involved, 
but uh, not really doing a job, not being directed to do a proper job. Um, they brushed their judgment all the way up to and including uh, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, who came out uh, officially on Monday the 25th, unofficially already on Sunday the 24th, saying that the case was over, it had been solved, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin. And how much would you have been able to make hay in the courtroom regarding the uh, the Mauser rifle actually even being the weapon recovered in the book depository? Because uh, my understanding is uh, very soon after they put that weapon on display, there was another weapon that was then swapped out uh, to say that, uh, no, uh, we got it wrong, it was this gun. Yeah, that's right. It was originally identified by uh, a, uh, an experienced uh, officer, as I recall. Um, what was the name? Seymour Weisberg. That's right, yeah. As, as a monitor, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, in, a, in a courtroom, which is where you and I, you know, made our bones, right? <laughs> Particularly you. Um, I'm still trying to make my bones, doctor. Um, I'm still paying my dues as they were, testifying in court on a regular basis. Matter of fact, this year I've testified uh, eight times in in court. That's right. It's been a bit, it's been a busy year. So my question to you, since you know, yeah, everybody talks about the famous cases, the John Benet Ramseys and the Kennedys and all that stuff, but you made your bones in those twenty thousand autopsies, in those forty thousand case consults testifying in the courtroom under the color of American jurisprudence and legal, medical, uh, uh, scientific, uh, reductive sciences, reductive science, experimentalism, the backbone of, um, of the forensic science uh, development, which in no short part is uh, due to your contributions that we're sitting here at this time with our advanced forensic science, and our understanding of it uh, is in the court of law, which is where we live. Is there any way in the world that Lee Harvey Oswald could have been convicted of the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Would he? Would any prosecutor have had a chance to get a guilty conviction on him if this evidence that we know today? was able to be examined by somebody like you and then talk to a jury. What's the chances? I believe that a skilled attorney uh, like Edward Bennett Williams, who was the top guy at that time, for example, and, and others uh, whom I worked with on cases as a young man, I believe that what we have been discussing and so much more that we won't have time to get into, I hope people will be interested enough to try to uh, read about this in my uh, in my book, which is uh, available now. You can place the order directly through McFarland Publishing or another week or so it will be available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And I'm going to have a link on the website uh, for this episode where you can buy uh, Dr. Weck's book, uh, The Greatest Murder Mystery, uh, 
and I am going to urge everybody to buy this book. I am going to be. Is there a hard cop, uh, a hardbound copy available, Doctor? Uh, I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it'll be out there soon. Oh, I really want to get a hard copy and buy it for all of my friends in the forensic science community because I'm telling you out there, people, you need to get this book uh, because the like like Dwight D. Eisenhower said. Um, it's about an informed public. That's how we keep this republic is by having an informed public. And here on Crime Scene Time Machine, which is so fitting that we are going back in time again to 1963 and discussing with a world famous forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Weck, about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Dr. Weck, Ruth Payne and her husband uh, were either CIA agents or co-opted CIA operatives of some sort. Uh, and they were the landlords uh, of Marina and Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, she had said under the, to the Warren Commission that she became friends with Marina because of her interest in learning Russian, but she was already fluent in Russian. Um, and she was put forward as a very prominent character uh, with regard to uh, her uh, uh, familiarity with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, do you find her to just be this house mistress, just happened to, to, to be involved, or is there more to that story, Doctor? I, I, I agree with you. The CIA, you know, these, these are not people who were necessarily trained CIA operatives going back uh, to their college or young adult days. But as you said, the work you just co-opted people who, you know, for one, one way or another, uh, you're a promise of something beneficial, uh, you're going to be a real threat, uh, you're uh, an appeal to a super patriotism. Uh, and I think that's where the pains fitted in, like other people. And then they were used to tie another string around the box containing the Oswald to present it to the American public. And that's what they did. Yeah. Okay, here's another question I have for you, uh, and I want to burn through a few of these pretty fast because I want to be conscious of our time. But I have these questions, and I really, I really just really want to hear some more uh, of you giving me uh, this education. Um, and here it is. On... And on, uh, uh, at one o'clock, around one o'clock, two days uh, after uh, Kennedy was killed, uh, uh, Kennedy died uh, in operating room number one. Uh, and then two days later, at one o'clock, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was brought in after he was shot, and he was in operating room number two, as deference to uh, Mr. Kennedy being killed and, and dying just right next door. Um, the doctor that was performing life-saving measures on Lee Harvey Oswald was interrupted during this emergency surgery to take a phone call from somebody who said something very suspicious to him. Could you please tell the audience a little bit about that? I don't remember the details of that, but it is something very, very strange to uh, uh, interrupt someone <laughs> performing surgery and so on. Well, the, the important thing about this is the elimination of Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby 
there's no way in the world going back to a question that you posed a few minutes ago, uh, where if he had gone to trial, uh, would he ever have been convicted? And I think that he would not have been convicted because it didn't have a case. And what he had to say, what he would have had to say too, about many other things, uh, and, and uh, his relationship possibly with the CIA is two and a half year uh, sojourn in Russia, uh, getting an honorable discharge from the Marines based on a cockamamie story about his mother's illness. Uh, there was no illness. <laughs> and, and, and during the Red Scare, Dr. Weck, is it possible that somebody could move to Russia, denounce their American citizenship, and then and then absolutely have no problem just being like, ah, I'm bored here, I think I need to go back to America, and then they're just going to stamp them, yep, come back in, no worries. That's not going to happen. No problem. I think he was given a substantial loan, married to the niece of a, of a high-ranking KGB official, a colonel, um, and uh, come back in, and it was amazing. He was never, at that time, interrogated extensively, interviewed by um, the uh, FBI and others. I went, I went to Russia for a professional program in 72 with uh, Henry Lee and uh, Michael Biden. When I came back, uh, FBI agents were in my office the very next day and spent a couple of hours with me. Guess what did I see and what did I do? Right. And so to think that Oswald, over there for almost two and a half years, married to the niece of a high-ranking official, uh, and they weren't interested in talking with him and getting a complete debriefing. Oh, my God. The more you think about things and all the ramifications, the, 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 the tentacles uh, from this stinking, decomposing body of the Warren Commission, uh, the more disgusted and angry you become. Let me let me jump on this, and I'm, maybe this will refresh your recollection. Um, it, Dr. Crenshaw was doing the surgery on Lee Harvey Oswald, and he uh, and this is what you have in the book on page uh, 102. Oswald's uh, uh, when the pulse slowed, Perry made another scalpel incision, and this time exposing the patient's heart. The doctor who attempted in vain to massage Prenton. President Kennedy's heart back to life was now performing the same task on JFK's alleged killer, but nothing worked. Not ventricular defibrillation, nor drugs injected um, uh, uh, right into the heart, unable to revive or save the now cyanotic Oswald was pronounced dead at 1.07 p.m. But prior to his actually dying, the doctor received a phone call. He identified himself and heard the caller's deep Texas accent. This is President Lyndon B. Johnson, Dr. Crenshaw. How is the accused? He told the president uh, that Oswald was holding his own at the moment, but that his condition was uh, very serious. President Johnson commanded Dr. Crenshaw to give the lead surgeons an order that there should be a deathbed confession from Oswald that witnesses in the room would hear. Crenshaw went back into the surgical arena and delivered the word, Oswald died, there would be no deathbed confession. Is it appropriate for the vice president and the now president of the United States to interfere with a surgery 
to demand a deathbed confession? What is going on with this, Doctor? Absolutely incredulous. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, you know, this is something that not many people know about or have ever heard about. Thank you for mentioning it. Yes, I, it blew, I literally, when I read this in your book, I jumped out of my chair and I just couldn't believe that that could be true. Um, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, how would that play in a courtroom? Oh, it would be disgusting. I came to know where Dr. Crenshaw, we developed a nice friendship or some programs together in a couple of different places. And that he always, always made it clear that uh, he uh, did not believe in the Warren Commission report. Okay, I have a couple of more questions for you here uh, that I want to really get in. Um, do you have any comments on Houston Congressman Albert Thomas and his behavior with Lyndon B. Johnson on Air Force One when he's being sworn in as president standing next to the newly widowed Jacqueline Kennedy? the wink photograph. You can interpret that in different ways. Remember that, I mean, you, you say that it doesn't just show that uh, he was involved, that well, we did it, so to speak, and so on. But keep in mind, Johnson was a pretty crude individual. Uh, he was an incredible politician, but he was a pretty crude individual. He'd, go into the bathroom. Yeah, crude and rude, yeah. And have a bomb movement with the open door and people mm -hmm. out there, you know, the President of the United States sitting there defecating. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting observation. Um, okay, um, let's get back into some more factual type stuff. Yeah. Here's a fact. Um, in 1947, Fred Chrisman uh, is a CIA agent involved in the recovery of an alleged UFO at Maury Island by the Puget Sound. Fred Chrisman turns up in 1963 as being one of the alleged hobos arrested as suspects in the shooting by the Dallas Police Department of John F. Kennedy. What's going on there? Incredible. Yeah, those uh, three hobos with the uh, Welsh actors um, and uh, never, never taken in, interrogated and so on. What were they doing? Where were they coming from? Oh, my God. There's so much there. So uh, much every, every string that you can pull on this case creates 20 more strings. Who could have pulled a string out of it? it? takes us back to the very beginning of our discussion, and that is, could only have been accomplished by uh, high-level officials um, uh, currently active or recently retired of AA military to have accomplished all of that. Think of what that would have needed to be done. A phone call here, a message there, uh, uh, nobody could have accomplished that except people uh, in those ranks. And then also, Guy Bannister was involved in the Murray Lake incident in 1947 as well. And Guy Bannister, as we learned from Oliver Stone and from you, uh, was a handler 
of Lee Harvey Oswald out of New Orleans. Yeah, that's right. Um, where Oswald was supposedly distributing a fair fight for Cuban literature, and an address uh, that was inhabited by Guy Bannister and his uh, people and so on. Yeah, oh my God, there's, there's so much here, Scott. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Okay, two more questions for you, Doctor. Uh, I'm going to save my best question for last because we are at about 57 minutes and I, I promise to get you off here in an hour, although I could talk to you all day because I just enjoy this. I'm so exhilarated and energized by your knowledge, by your organization, by your story career. Um, it's such an honor. Um, all right, Dr. Weck. There are, are there any details in your investigation since uh, the release in 2017 uh, of additional uh, top secret declassified uh, but yet still redacted material put out? Uh, one of the pieces, one of the documents that I've found in my uh, investigation that uh, I find is extremely important is a, a memo called or now called the Burn memo where uh, the CIA or the FBI uh, writes a memo uh, saying Lancer, which is the CIA, which is the Secret Service name for John F. Kennedy, Lancer is is inquiring uh, into our activities. This cannot be allowed. Uh, and it uh, is basically saying Kennedy's looking into our stuff. We can't allow this, and the memo is burned. Uh, it looks like it's a burned piece of paper. That's why it's called the burn memo. Do you do you did that memo or any other information that came out in 2017? Uh, uh, did that help or augment your investigation? And then the follow up to that is, oh, go ahead, go ahead and answer that one first. Remember, it ties in with the statement that Kennedy made to Senator Mike Mansfield following the Bay of Pigs debacle. Where he tore up a piece of paper uh, into many, many pieces, threw it into the air, and said, This is what I intend to do to the CIA. Keep that in mind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, Kennedy's speech that might have gotten him killed, uh, some people theorize, is the speech where he talks about um, there is no room in America for secret societies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so here's, uh, and I don't want to get too much into that, but here's my final question for you, Doctor. Where is John F. Kennedy's brain? I do not know. It has never been accounted for. Thank you for mentioning this. I was the one to release to the public that the brain was missing, that it had not it had been placed in formal a fix of the solution uh, properly after the autopsy and uh, went back uh, two weeks later uh, the pathologist who did the autopsy these two were comedians who had no experience in forensic pathology who had never done a gunshot wound autopsy they went back and they could see it in the report serial sections of the brain are not made in order to preserve the specimen preserve the specimen by whom? Jackie Kennedy's mantelpiece? Yeah. Yeah. Very thank you for touching upon that. And that was in August 24, 1972, page one story, New York Times, written by Fred Graham, President's Brain Missing. And it remains unaccounted for. And while some of the Warren Commission defenders and sycophants 
try to tell you what other counties took it. They buried it. There is no documentation, no reference, no suggestion of that at all that the counties ever took the break. And isn't it a fact that if we had the brain to be examined by you, uh, uh, that that would definitively yes. prove beyond any reasonable scientific doubt that the bullets came from the front. Absolutely. That's why the brain went missing. That's why I went missing. Um, and now my final uh, yeah. thought, and I'd love you to, to comment on this, is they killed the man in JFK, but they killed the idea when they killed Bobby. Are we living in a different America now in, yes. than we were before the Kennedys were killed, Dr. Weck? I, I, I strongly believe that the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Dr. Martin Luther King um, moved this country and the world into a different direction. And I strongly believe, and have not anybody ever prove it, but if those people have remained alive and continue to espouse what they believe with the followings that they had um, uh, politically with the Kennedys and uh, in a broader sense uh, with King and so on, that we were kind of have a different world today. Um, but that's why they were eliminated, because that kind of world was not acceptable to the super patriots who believed that America was going to hell in a basket, and uh, they weren't going to sit back and let that happen. And 13 more years of the Kennedy, five of uh, Jack, uh, uh, eight years of Bobby Kennedy, they weren't going to let that happen. Well, Scott, I thank you very much. A marvelous interview. Uh, you're so well read. And um, uh, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. And, and, and Dr. Weck, I, I just want to thank you one more time for being here with me. And I would love to invite you back on at some point in the near future so that we can discuss the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Okay. All right. We'll do that sometime. Okay. Thank you so much, Doctor. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. All right. Be well. Okay, folks, that was a wonderful interview uh, with Dr. Cyril Weck, forensic pathologist, one of the most uh, famous uh, scientists in American history, uh, my colleague, uh, and uh, uh, what a wonderful guest. So um, I hope you enjoy that, folks. Uh, go to the Crime Scene Time Machine uh, webpage and you'll get all the links and photographs of the things that we were talking about uh, here today. You'll get a link on how you can buy Dr. Weck's book and uh, uh, look at some other fun things and stuff. Okay guys, Whew. that was fun. Um, until next time, I'm Scott Roeder and I love you America. Oh,